Sunday in the Gospel of John. I was thinking about that, and that means it, it takes about two hours to read the Gospel of John. So as a church family, we've stood together in 2020 uh, and heard God's Word read together for two hours. What a valuable two hours. And we stand as a congregation, and many of you, if, uh, those of you with your bodies that are closer to glorification, I guess, uh, perhaps we'd say, uh, some of you it's harder to stand. And so I'm reminded in that time, of course, you don't have to be obligated where you must stand for that time, but I, as one who does not have problems uh, standing, uh, it is such an encouragement to remember that, that we are a gathered body of people with different physical bodies at <laughs> different seasons, uh, and yet we long to sit under and to hear God's Word. That is a privilege. We come to this text in the final words that are recorded by John, words in which the challenge is given, a restorative message for Peter as Jesus sits around the campfire. They just caught this load of fish, 153 fish, and Jesus has the fire going and they're sitting around it and Jesus looks at Peter and he gives him this charge. He gives him this charge to feed his sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. So this morning, we're going to look at this text and observe three primary ingredients that we must have. Though Peter had a unique ministry in time and season as an apostle, seeing the resurrected Christ and, and giving a particular authoritative message for us. And yet the call that we have, likewise, to make disciples is one is a call to be able to feed, to nourish, to shepherd, to protect, to care for. And so if we're going to have these ingredients in our life, these three components, one, two, three, that we must have if we're to feed the sheep of God. We need to listen and abide by this word. But then we're going to look at a conclusion, a consequence of if you believe that this good news, this gospel message, the message contained in this book of, of the Father who in love sent the eternally begotten Son, who came and took on flesh, lived a sinless life, fulfilled all the demands of Scripture, and He laid His life down as a make-right sacrifice on the cross, defeated death and rose again, ministered and ascended to heaven, and He will come again one day soon. If you believe this message is true, it's worth your repentance and faith. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, this is worth your repentance and faith in all of your life, time, talent, treasures. But if it's not true, this message is meant to be rebuked, shut down. For no message in human history has caused, if not true, perhaps more relational and familial suffering than this gospel message. This isn't a message that we can just put on a shelf and say, ah, oh, it's okay. Christians are solid people. Pretty nice. This is a message that has consequences for our lives. So church family, let's look at, as we begin first, looking at these pivotal ingredients for serving Christ's sheep. What ought we to do? We look at 15 and 17 through 17. We ought to love Jesus personally. First, we must love Jesus personally. Three times of Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And moved and grieved, we have this affirmation that Peter gives, yes, yes, yes. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Why is this a moving scene? It's because Jesus, even though Peter often functions as the mouthpiece for the disciples, the courageous one that's first to open his lips, Jesus particularly addresses Peter. This is the third time, John tells us, the third time in which the resurrected Christ has appeared to the disciples. 
When we think of the third time, we think of just a little while earlier when Peter denied Jesus three times before the crucifixion. And now they're sitting across the fire from one another. And Jesus, in this restorative and beautiful way, asked him, do you love me? And Jesus restores him and gives him the commissioning. Then you go and feed my sheep. What a Savior we serve. Peter, in his mind, was serving the purpose of when he thought about what it meant to, to love, he, he based it in a, an emotional charge. He was willing, but his spirit was weak. You remember, that's what happens in John 13 that's recorded. Jesus foretells of what's going to happen, that he's going to be crucified. And in John 13, listen to what Peter said. In John 13, 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter in John 18, we see, thought he was fulfilling perhaps that promise. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. When they came to arrest Jesus and he drew his little sword, this fisherman drawing his sword to take it at, at trained soldiers. Foolishness. That's not what Jesus had in mind with what it meant to love him. We serve a God who's in the redeeming business. Every one of us as believers from Liz's testimony we saw a moment ago, we are in the business of being redeemed by the work of Christ. Peter, in his foolishness, thinks that the greatest way that he can serve Jesus in the kingdom of God is to take his little sword and swing it and to die in a moment of glory. But Jesus takes his sword and he beats it into a shepherd's staff. For historically, we... We understand that Peter will serve three more decades of feeding Christ's flock. And even though many of those scenes are given to us, we see, we see through the book of Acts and, and in Galatians as well, little hints of Peter's ministry. So many of them are unknown. But God would see it fit to write a better story. God writes a better story for our lives than what we can imagine. Peter's story was certainly going to be one of glory going out in a moment of courage. In reality, it was faithlessness. Faithlessness. And Jesus told him, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. In James and John, this is what they asked him. Mark 10, remember? They go to Jesus and they said, let one of us sit on your right hand, the other sit on your left hand. Certainly they weren't thinking about crucifixion. Jesus has a better story. Now, we don't know how our stories end. We don't know what the moment and context will be where the very last pump of blood from our heart will take place. For some, it could be a tragedy, a, a sad accident at a young age. Others, it could be old age. Others, it might be a disease. We don't know that story. What we do know is that God is sovereign and faithful and good in all of His ways. And He addresses Peter, do you love me? And he restores Peter and gives him a life of faithful service. He writes a better story for our lives than we can. And that's a part of what it is to be a believer. is to say, Jesus, for my life and whatever you have for me, whatever you have for me, if it's a lifetime of sitting around this fire and eating all 153 fish, 
for just the rest of my life, and you just keep catching fish. I'm a trained fisherman. I'll go catch them and come back, and we'll just grill fish for the next 50 years. It'll be awesome. But that's not God's will that he had for Peter. In that moment, that was God's will. He was abiding. He was faithful. He waited in Galilee until he was given marching orders. But God's will for Peter would also entail 30 years of small, slow, faithful service. Little acts of suffering that historically would lead to a grandiose act of suffering. And he tells us about this. For as believers, we are to love Jesus personally if we're to feed his sheep. And second, we're to glorify God in inglorious circumstances. To glorify God in inglorious circumstances. Look at verse 18 and 19. Love Jesus personally and glorify God in inglorious circumstances. Parents, this must be a prayer that we pray for our children and for our grandchildren and for the little ones that we are, have been entrusted to our care. God, would you train them and grow them and mature them in such a way that they would long to glorify you in inglorious circumstances. 18 and 19, again, as a reminder, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourselves and walk wherever you wanted. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Likely they're in crucifixion. 30 years. In three years of ministry, John tells us that if all the works were recorded that Jesus did, they could fill all the books, perhaps, obviously, some hyperbole in there. But to see what we have in the Scriptures are not exhaustive, but they're sufficient for us. They're sufficient. They're sufficient and clear enough in the issues of salvation and understanding. They're, su they're sufficient to grow us as men and women of God by the Spirit. They're sufficient for us. They're authoritative for us. They nourish us. But in Peter's life, he would have three decades, and all we get are little hints of his life. All the suffering he would experience wouldn't simply be his end, his final moments on the cross. For the inglorious circumstances that made his life would be lives of small sufferings. Small sufferings. Small sufferings. Perhaps family conflict. Because your life is built upon the foundation that Jesus is the Messiah. The one who's resurrected from the grave. The one in whom my hope is placed. The one who will come again soon. Relational or social cost. Awkward conversations. And perhaps for some, martyrdom. Isn't that what makes couples that have been married for decades fascinating to watch? Fascinating to listen to. Couples that have been married three, four, five, six decades. What makes their marriage so unique and so interesting to, to observe is not the big event. It's the constant daily service and sacrifice and selflessness that builds a beautiful testimony of faithfulness and commitment. And so too it is with the believer that we ought to pray, God, whatever you have for my life, your plan is better than my plan. Your plan that you have for my life, Lord. 
I want to glorify you in inglorious circumstances. You think of most, most suffering through history today, not simply relational conflict for the sake of the gospel. But physical suffering is happening in, in, in communist countries, in Marxist countries, in countries where, where, where much is suppressed and hidden. But glorifying God in inglorious circumstances, what a prayer for us to pray for ourselves. God, I want to glorify you this week. Whatever situation you would have for me, whatever it is, I want to glorify you. That is a beautiful prayer for the believer. Oh, that we would learn to feed Christ's sheep, to love Jesus personally, to glorify God in inglorious circumstances. And third, in verses 19 through 23, to follow Jesus with a singular focus. Jesus, we want to follow you with a singular focus. Do you see what Peter asked right away, which is so fitting? This happens in my life too. If you've ever fed children, their eyes are usually looking at the other plate. What do they get? Like, I want the blue plate, not the yellow plate. And you switch it around the next meal, and it's, I want the yellow plate, not the blue plate. That's what Sarah and I do. We argue over yellow and blue plate. That's not, it's just kidding. Peter asks about John. Your plan for me is that I should have many years of shepherding and then death. Okay. What about him? What does Peter say? Or what does Jesus say to Peter? What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Follow Jesus with a singular focus. How easy is it, listen, even as believers, to begin to, out of curiosity, begin to covet God's will for other believers and the path that the Lord has for them to walk out. There's so many seasons of coveting that we can do that can choke out our joy, even as believers. There is thousands of examples we could each share and give where we've coveted somebody else's either stage of life or circumstances. Or as a pastor, to, 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 to covet another flock or assignment. What foolishness. Jesus tells Peter, you follow me. Now that statement in reality is one of incredible comfort. Because in this threefold denial that, that Jesus receives from Peter, Jesus gives the promise to Peter now that you will follow me until your death. It's not an accident that this is that John arranges it in this way. I truly believe this. So what comes to mind? In Peter's mind, before this campfire scene of being restored to ministry and commissioned to go feed sheep, not only does Peter know that he's got that Jesus still has work for him to do, that God still has work for him to do, but now he's told that he will do it faithfully to the end. So it sounds like a gloomy text that says. If we were Peter, we might think, if I was Peter, I might think, oh man, that doesn't sound like a great ending to my story. Being killed. Crucified. I would way prefer something else. But what it was to Peter was a statement that he will be faithful to the end. For Peter had denied Jesus three times, but now he's told, 
for decades. We see historically, you will follow me. And even though, Peter, you denied me, I will not deny you. You follow me. And I will lead you to your cross. You denied me before I came to my cross. I will not deny you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. That doesn't mean that Peter lived a sinless life. We know the conflict between Peter and Paul. That was causing division in the church. He was showing partiality between who he fellowshiped with. And he gets rebuked by Paul, called out. So Peter doesn't live a sinless life. He doesn't live a perfect life. Just as we had our corporate time of confession as a congregation, it's a reminder of our dependence upon Christ and our resting in Christ's finished work. But what it is is a reminder that He's not done with us, that He is faithful to us, even when we are faithless. His loving kindness and faithfulness. That's the goodness of our God. This ministers to our hearts. It reminds us that, number one, if we are presently faithful to Christ, if we're abiding in His will that He has for us today, that we ought not become proud or thinking we're self-reliant. Just as Peter needed to, to eat a literal meal there with Jesus, to have his body nourished, he still had to eat again next week. And so as believers that are walking in the hand of God, we say, thank you, God, but let me not forget you. Let me be dependent upon you tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. As the prayer of Agur in Proverbs 30, let me not get so much that I think I am my own Lord, that I am dependent and I forget you and neglect your ways, God. And so if we find ourselves walking in the hand of the Lord, let us say, God, pour me out in glorious circumstances for your glory. I want to follow you wherever you lead me, by your word and spirit. That's a good reminder today. And on the other side, it's also true that if you limped in this morning, sheep, of God. If you're hanging on by a thread, it's a reminder that God is faithful, that He's in the redeeming business. He makes all things new, and so look to Christ. And so past unfaithfulness doesn't neglect present and future faithfulness. He restores us into right fellowship. In 1 John chapter 1, we confess our sins and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there's a reason when Stephen does those times of confession as a congregation, what does he do right afterwards? He always brings us back to the Word of God. And when we drift, we can easily forget the Word of God and let our minds just go and run amok. So if you've limped in this morning, remember His loving kindness is working in us. What a joy to follow Him. Isn't that true? What a joy it is to follow Him individually and to follow Him together as the body of Christ. This is what it is to feed Christ's sheep. So, three pivotal ingredients for serving Christ's sheep. Now the fourth is the cost of your response. Here's the cost of our response. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this and have some fun together. The Gospel of John is either true and repenting and believing and following Jesus is worth the entirety of your life. Either Jesus raised from the dead or he did not raise from the dead. And that is a fact. Listen, not that the disciples believe, but that is a fact that the disciples know 100% is true or is false. 
And so this message is either true and worth the giving of all of your life and all of your dreams and goals and time and talent and treasure, all the things of present life and future that God will bring into your life. It's worth your everything because it's true. But if it's not true, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, if this message that we've walked through in the Gospel of John is not true, if Jesus is not God, if He is not sent from the Father, if He is not risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and is interceding for us and ruling, if this is not true, then this message needs to be, listen, rebuked, rejected, shunned. Shut down. Because the amount of suffering and division that it has caused is immeasurable through history. So what do you believe about this? Verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. What would you do for something that you knew 100% was a lie? What would you do, not believed, what would you do for something you 100% knew was a lie? Would you give up your job for it? Would you give up your cell phone for it, right? Would you give up your family for it if you knew it was a lie? Would you tell other people about it? And if they believed it, they would also suffer for it? Even physically unto death, very possibly? What would you do for something you knew was a lie? The question becomes automatically, let's think of the culture. What did they have to gain by sharing this lie? By making it up, by saying Jesus bodily rose from the dead. What did they have to gain? Well, here's what they gained you look at the motives of man. Many people have written about this. Did they gain in power? No. They didn't gain in power. They go to their deaths for this. They get chased around for their lives from city to city for this. They didn't gain in power or reputation, but the opposite. Paul, who will come to see the resurrected Christ and be commissioned by the Lord as an apostle, he loses his reputation as a, as a Pharisee and he takes on the job of a part-time tent maker in one context. Did they gain renally? I'll say that word. Sexually? You look at the motives, man-made motives. Did they gain in power? You look at the disciples. No, they did not. Did they gain sexually? No, they did not. Did they gain financially? After all, this is just a big scam, right? To make all tons of money. If you want a lot of ministry in life, money in life, go into ministry, right? Is that what this is? Not at all. They count themselves servants of God. So what would you do for a lie? What did they lose? They lost three years. Three years in which they thought this man who had worked miracles, everybody knew he'd worked miracles. Remember, the miracles were undeniable. Undeniable. They see this, they think he fits the profile of the Messiah. Let's follow him. He taught like nobody had taught. 
and they leave it behind and they begin following him. Peter leaves his fishing nets behind. The disciples leave their jobs. Matthew leaves his tax collecting profession and they follow after Jesus. They follow this way. The birds have nests, but not the Son of Man. He has nowhere to lay his head. They follow him for three years, less time than it takes to complete college. And so let me ask you a couple of questions. This is the interactive portion physically with your hands. So here we go. I got a question for you. Would you be willing to tell me, and by showing of your hands, if you ever changed your major in college? And you may have to raise your hand for a while. I'm going to ask several questions. So go ahead and raise your hand if you ever, if you're a college student or you were a college student, if you ever changed your major. So you received some training in school in which you didn't apply it. You wasted it. That sounds harsh. Well, keep them up. Keep them up. Okay. Now, those of you that are older, have you ever changed careers at any point? So you received training. You can keep them up, though, if you're that previous group. We're going to get to a point where almost all of us are. You change careers or you, can't, you change jobs in which you receive training in which you no longer apply that in a different area. Okay? That's most of us. Now, you just volunteered that without the threat of death, without suffering. Now, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine there's the disciples, the apostles are sitting right up here in these four pews, okay? You all offered up the truth that you had spent some time in training that you no longer apply. I want you to imagine that the disciples, you can put your hand down there. Okay, very good. Your arms are going to start feeling the burn if I didn't tell you. Stephen, thank you for that. Joseph, thank you for this. I want you to imagine that the disciples now up here, they raise their hand. But they're actually, they're the ones that didn't raise their hand. Everybody else, you raise your hand. You say, yeah, maybe I spent several years training in something. I, have, I don't do it all now. The disciples up here refuse to raise their hands. And a matter of fact, they're so embarrassed at the fact that they have to change, they have to admit that they spent three years following around this Jesus who was remarkable, worked miracles. I'd follow him around just for that, wouldn't you? They follow him around. They listen to his teachings. But he didn't raise from the dead. But they, they're so embarrassed by that, even though they could profit financially like Judas did by denying that Jesus is the Messiah, selling them out. They're so embarrassed by that, they decide, you know what? We're going to continue to tell people this, that he rose from the dead, even if we die. And we're going to tell people, and we're going to look over to this row, and, and I don't ever ask people permission to pick on you, but I'm going to pick on Haley. Is that okay? Haley is terrified. If you just said no, I don't know what I would have done. But Haley, you were baptized the other day, so I feel like I can pick on you because you already told us your story. So young Haley Watts, they look over at young Haley Watts and say, Haley, hey, this young girl, if she believes this, this is going to cost her in her life but we refuse to admit that we made a mistake in following three years following Jesus. So we're going to spread this lie that we know is untrue. It's not true. And then Haley goes into a life of believing a lie. What kind of monsters would these men be? And the women and Mary likewise who propagated this. They'd be the worst of the worst. You look at history and we look at Watergate in that context. If something is lie, a lie, when you think about what will people pay for a lie, it's usually not very much when they know it's not true. And the disciples knew whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. And they went to their deaths saying, no, it's true, He really rose from the dead. And you should repent and believe He is the promised Messiah. In 1972, May 28th, Liddy's team breaks into the DNC at the Watergate complex and bugs his phones. 
In a matter of months, they begin to admit what they did. Nixon resigns two years later. They were facing even more consequence than what the disciples would have faced simply to say, yeah, he didn't raise from the dead. They could have gone back to their homes, back to their jobs. Clearly, Peter still knows how to fish. And everything would have been fine. But they refused. They received this commissioning from Jesus to go into all the nations, to proclaim the gospel, to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them to obey all things. And Jesus told them, oh, I'll be with you till the end of the age. And they go to their deaths doing so. Peter goes to his death feeding Christ's sheep. Is this message true or is it false? It's worth all of your life. I want to take this into dollars and cents, very literally. Especially for you, those of you that are younger that haven't started your careers yet. We talk about social costs and those things. Let's talk financially. I looked up one source, and it said the average American will make $270,000, I'm sorry, $2.7 million in their career. So if you give your life to Christ and are a believer and you practice tithing, you will give $270,000 in your life to advance the gospel. That's not including when the Lord places upon your heart to give additional offerings, support missionaries, do various things. Hundreds of thousands of dollars because it's worth your life? Or are you propagating the greatest act of suffering known to man? One of them. Do you believe it's true? It's worth your life. If it's not true, it's worth your rebuke. What do you say? What do you say? Next week we begin 1 Peter. Living faithfully in the little while. Believers begin to endure suffering. Some physical suffering and other social suffering and relational and family strife because of the gospel message. Begins to cost them greatly as they come out to Christ from pagan backgrounds and, and from Jewish backgrounds that recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Many of them don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And it causes massive conflict. And Peter writes this letter and prepares them for suffering in this season of the little while. It brings marriage conflict, it brings social conflict, relational conflict, and for many it brings physical conflict. And our calling church body is to prepare one another for suffering, faithfully to the Lord, to shift our perspective not from minimizing suffering to say, it's not that bad, don't worry, but to rather gain a right perspective of eternity and the greatness of our God and the sovereignty and power and love of our God, the Jesus whom we love. And so that His love and the eternal scope of His power puts our suffering and our hardships and our heartaches and our discontentments into such a perspective that we persevere glorifying God with all of our days. That's the goodness of our God. That's the joy of gathering together as our brothers and sisters in Christ to poke each other along for love and good deeds. To weep as we weep and to rejoice when we rejoice and to go faithfully to making disciples for there is no greater purpose in life as Jesus rose from the dead. There is no greater purpose than making disciples, making followers of Jesus. This is the call that God has for your life. Do you know Him? 
And if you don't know Him, make today the day that you repent and place your faith and trust in Christ. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony, it is true. This is true and it's worth your life. Amen? As with every Sunday at the end of the service, there will be pastoral staff here in the front. If you, Today is the day in which you give your life to Christ. You have questions about what that is or if there's a question that you're stuck on and saying, you know, help me understand this. We're always here to pray with you and encourage you. And talk with you about what's it mean to follow Christ. And so at the end of service, you come forward after the service is over. We want to sit with you and pray with you and talk with you. God is good and He's faithful. He's worth our time. Amen? Next steps. Two next steps. Number one's a challenge to you. A task for you. Would you take time this week to reread the Gospel of John? You could listen to it. Remember, it takes you about two hours, so you want to budget it in. Reread the Gospel of John this week. Or at least listen to it. You can listen to it at like 1.5 speed. I don't know how long that would take, but it's quicker than two hours. Take time just this week celebrating God's love. Listen to the Gospel of John. And marinate in what we've walked through so far in 2020. The second is a prayer, a mindset. As a believer, God's plan for my life may include seasons or times of both extremes. On one side, sitting around a campfire and sweet fellowship and closeness to Jesus and feasting with Him. And it may be God's will at different seasons in my life to go to hard suffering. Hard seasons. And so would you ask God to give you a peace to believe that this is true? And His will for your life as you abide in Him and rest in Him and and, and aim to walk out making disciples will include both seasons in your life. And if that's what He counts for you, then you say, praise God. Thank you, Lord. I'm resting in you today. That's a prayer for a believer. So let me pray for us before we respond in song to the Lord who is worthy. Father, we thank You for this good word. We thank you for the joy that it is to know you with confidence through your son, Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus, we thank you for in full obedience to the Father, coming and living a sinless life and fulfilling all the demands of Scripture. And you were holy and just. You responded to reviling, Lord, with words of forgiveness and love and intercession. And Lord, we're reminded just as by Liz's testimony that you or in the business of redemption. And so we ask you, Spirit, would you bring people who are spiritually dead to life? Bring them to come to know Jesus and the joy of resting in Jesus, His finished work, to go from a life of running and working and trying to earn our salvation or our approval or our holiness, Lord, to rather turning and trusting in Jesus Christ and what He has done for us on the cross. And we look forward to the day in which we will be with Him face to face in glory. Help us, Lord, to long to love You personally, to glorify You in glorious circumstances. God, You are beautiful. You're worthy of our lives. Advance Your kingdom in our lives personally and in the community and the people that we interact with this week. We love You and we thank You for the joy that it is to sing Your praises. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together.
Amen. Would you stand with me?